This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. I dedicated the book to my parents. I had them in mind uh, the entire time. And also, I wrote some very personal things in here that they didn't know had happened to me, either in childhood or in the Marines. Um, And as I was writing, and I wrote for several years, as I was writing and rewriting, I... um, I realized my mother and I had very different versions of the same story. So whether that was a story about my childhood trauma or her adolescent trauma or adult trauma, um, and we were kind of continuing over the decades. It wasn't just years, it was decades, to tell different versions to one another of our stories, what what little we did share. Um, And so... It was important for me to start with my mother. I mean, I almost wanted to start with my grandmother, but there weren't enough pages Mm -hmm. for this book. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of what you talk about has the really the cadence of intergenerational trauma. Any of the trauma you... Because your work is about trauma, really, and um, your references are very much about that, I think. Absolutely. Uh, even even in the branding of this book, and every every author comes to terms with how their book is branded by the industry at some mm-hmm. point. But uh, so for many folks, this is a military memoir. But I always saw it as a memoir about being the daughter of immigrants. Always, like that's the story. Because were it not for that, I wouldn't have done the work that I did. Right. I wouldn't have joined the military. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have done the work I did after I left the military. I wouldn't have, my entire lens was shaped by my culture, Mm -hmm. um, by my parents, you know, by by my skin color and ethnicity. Um, Well, you talk about that. You and I have talked about that for a long time now, this issue of brownness in America and how it informs our experiences. Um, and you reference that over and over again in the book. Can you touch on that? Yeah, I mean, my relationship to brownness is evolving, as it is for many people. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it evolves in direct relationship to the, the political atmosphere. Um, certainly even in my decisions, I, I used to go by Anu, now I go yes. by Anuradha. My Can you explain that, though? Because like yeah. when I used to order food, I was Lisa. No, there's some, <laughs> some folks here who also remember me as Anuradha Lisa, That's really. right, Lisa. So, <laughs> Um, I always went by Anuradha when I was little because my, it, that was the name my mother chose for mm-hmm. me. And it was a name that very few people could pronounce, including me, because I didn't grow up speaking my native tongue. So was always, I was always a little bit off, just a little mm-hmm. bit, you know, so I would, I would practice saying my own name. Mm-hmm. And I shortened it to Anu when I was doing work really with the Pentagon and the media. And I got tired. I, it, and it, it, this is, this is a lame thing to say. I got tired of correcting people or mm-hmm. explaining you know, and they would forget because folks don't really make an effort sometimes, especially in fast-paced industries, right? They just want to get on to the next thing. And, but I mean, the real story, it's not that I was tired. I mean, I, I had felt marginalized as a result of my name since I was a child. And actually, you know, I, I I was surrounded by, you know, I went to this incredible elementary school where people did actually say my full name. The effort, effort to shorten it made me more welcome, but they even got Anu wrong. So I was often transformed into Anne, like regardless. Which, as you point out at the end of the book, uh, happens in a sort of pivotal story that you tell. Yeah, yeah. As an adult. Shall doing, I tell that Yes, story? you should. So this is a good one. Yeah. Um, you know, something about the timing of the advocacy work we were doing, this was slightly before what I call Me Too version two, yes. you know, Hollywood's Me Too, or not yes. Toronto Burke's Me Too, but um, when we brought national attention to sexual violence in the military, and this was just, you know, stubborn uh, commitment to, to stating the truth in the halls of Congress again and again and again, you know, there's some major lawsuits that we helped um, bring attention to as well on behalf of survivors. Um that led to this enormous media attention yes. and then congressional attention. Um, but uh, I was invited to meet the new VA secretary one day. And it was very hard. It was hard for us to get a meeting with the secretary because we were suing him. So not, not so surprising, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and we were suing him for sex discrimination uh, because we had discovered after filing a bunch of FOIAs that uh, and, and then mm-hmm. suing for, for that information that they refused to give us, that sexual trauma disability claims were being denied at a higher rate 
for, and these, these are post-traumatic stress disability, sexual trauma claims. We're being high, denied at a higher rate than... Exponentially well, higher than rate. PTSD claims yes, as a whole. So that would include things like combat-related PTSD. So maybe not that surprising to people who know how sexual violence operates mm -hmm. within institutions. But, the, you know, the numbers were glaring. And so this is what we sued him over. Um, and so Bob McDonald then was the new VA secretary. If you remember a few years ago, General Shinseki, who was really well-loved by the veterans community, stepped down, sort of mm -hmm. forcibly resigned um, after the scandal at the Phoenix VA, the Veterans Affairs um, Medical Center, where veterans were dying, waiting in line for treatment, um, waiting for appointments. Mm -hmm. And so I walked in, and he was a you know, former Procter & Gamble, Gamble executive. CEO. Yep. Yeah, I mean really came from corporate America and he'd gone to West Point back in the day. So he had some, some military experience for sure. Um, so I had my sticker on, we all had our stickers and I was one of maybe two women in the room. I think the rest was sort of a sea of men. And I was used to this and all, all yes. white men, all literally, I was usually the only woman, usually the only person of color in all of these meeting spaces in Washington. Um, and he ignored my hand, my raised hand for at least an hour and a half. It was a long meeting. One of those, he was really trying to, to show us who he was. Finally, his assistant like, yeah, said, hey, you have over. to, that's right. Yeah, so he came over and he looked at my name and it was, the sticker was spelled A-N-N. -N. You know, it had been shortened from Anurada to Anu and then misspelled Ann. Not uncommon. He slapped it on my, on my lapel and, uh, and you could see, you could see the wheels turning because he was, you know, very clever and very much in charge. And so he approached me and he said, Ann? Because I hadn't introduced myself. I said, you know, mm -hmm. Anu, sir, mm -hmm. like Anu, Anu, yes, Bhagwati, sir, you know, former Marine yes. officer, blah, 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 right? And he paused, approached me, and peeled the sticker off of my chest, which was, and I, I dissociated. I wasn't just yeah. shocked. I like, I went somewhere, you know, which was, uh, and this is a, a presidential appointee, right? In front of but he didn't stop there. Oh, he didn't stop there. So he took his pen. I think he borrowed, he borrowed a pen from the veteran in front of him. And he crossed out the N and wrote a U. And then he tried to slap it back on my chest. And this is when, this is when I snapped back into my body, you know, and I, I, I literally, you know, I, like my yeah. arm came up to, to block him, which was a, either close combat training or just, you know, yeah. oh, just, hell no. You were fed up. Right? I was fed up. Um, and then, of course, I was shaking the rest of the meeting. It was just, and there was complete silence in the room. These were all the heads of, of all the major veterans organizations in Washington. Um, and they knew, you know, they, they knew something horrible had just happened. And one of them came up to me after, but nobody said anything. I mean, what, are you, what would you have said? I'm not entirely sure what the answer right. to that question is. But then you told him. I told, I, I, I brought his assistant aside, who was a former Marine. Yeah. And, uh... You know, he had sort of fair skin and he turned ghost white when I said, you know, you should probably remind your boss that you know, he's being sued by us in a sex discrimination <laughs> case filed by my organization. Um, but also, given the fact that sexual trauma is so rampant in the military and so many so many veterans who are under his charge now, under his care, are walking into VA facilities with experiences of sexual harassment. And assault. He should be extra educated about this, extra smart, right? And he, I mean, he he was terrified. He said, I'll, you know, I'll get you a meeting. Of course, the meeting never happened. Um, what really struck me about that, it's towards the end of the book. Mm -hmm. And the book, you have so many examples of both microaggressions and macroaggressions mm -hmm. where there is a persistent defense and minimization of the harm mm -hmm. and what passes as sexualized humor, sexual aggression, even flat out sexual violence, it's dismissed. It's not considered discriminatory. Right. And um, in the context of the military, which is such a hegemonically hyper-masculine space, it seems as though the experiences that women might have every day on the street are concentrated, magnified. They take on so much more power mm -hmm. in that environment. So I've been thinking about this question for many years, even as recently as this month. Mm -hmm. um, when you know, I, I talk very freely about my experiences as a patient in VA, mm -hmm. um, seeking mental health treatment and, and everything else. And 
And it was a mental health professional this month as I was sort of like reliving the experiences I wrote about in my book. It's, you know, alive and well now. Um, She reminded me that it's not surprising I would still be triggered by men asking me about experiences with harassment and assault in a very kind of naive and sort of friendly way. Um, And I was actually triggered in a media interview a month ago by a very professional reporter who was asking these questions in in a way that I was used to being asked. And it happened anyway. It happened at... It was, it was like, you know, harassment isn't bad enough. The rape isn't brutal enough. These are, these, he didn't say that, right? But these are the types of things that, um, that people are often implying in the questions that they're asking. And certainly survivors are experiencing some version of that kind of, wait, you don't believe me. Um, or you don't believe that it could matter. Right, right. Right. And so she said, this clinician I saw said, uh, it's not surprising that you feel uh, you don't feel validated because the, the, the men who were in charge of you during that time were the ones who were defining what harassment and assault was. That's like Hannah Gadsby. It's yes. the good men who define where the line is and then they make sure they're on the right side of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I don't think I ever had a woman in the Marines actually validate the experience I was going through or, uh, except, except my enlisted Marines, the, the women mm-hmm. I was in charge of. Whom I was defending. <laughs> it's interesting, though, because you start actually with uh, a sexual assault on the subway, I think, mm-hmm. right? That Which yeah. is common to women, just public transportation, mm-hmm. being grabbed that way or having mm-hmm. someone, you know, shove their hand into your into your clothes. Right. And it's almost as though there you have this little glimpse of that. And then as you go through life and you enter these spaces, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, can you talk about how you connect that specifically to the rationalization of barring women from combat and mm. their subordination in the culture? I mean, the first thing I want to say about that is, you know, so I was assaulted when I was a teenager on the subway mm-hmm. and didn't tell anybody for 25 years, which is an extraordinarily long amount of time. And some of that was was cultural. Like, I, I didn't the know. The same that, thing happened right? to me. I didn't know. I didn't entirely process what had happened. I didn't tell friends even, but I certainly didn't tell my parents. Um, and I blocked it away so that even when I started doing Swan advocacy work, even though you know that and worse had happened to my mother, mm-hmm. and that and worse had happened to friends of mine, even though it was all around me, I did not. I was not able to say that that happened to me for twenty five years. Even though it was obvious now that I look back on it, that all those experiences that had happened to me or my mother or mm-hmm. women and girls that I knew was leading me into this work to advocate for, for women in the right. military, still didn't get it, still didn't remember what had happened to me in the subway until until Me Too version 2 happened. Mm-hmm. And I, I was watching tens of thousands of, of tweets on Twitter of women talking about harassment and assault in public places. You know, so not in private places, not in, not in the barracks, not in the yes. bedrooms, not in, right? But Just on the street, on, on the, the street, on the bus, on the subway. And and that's when I, I remember, which is remarkable. But I think that was really common after mm-hmm. the grabbing by the pussy tape mm-hmm. and then the Me Too movement right. and Not Okay and Yes, All Women. I just remember entering spaces where women were having memories they didn't want, had suppressed, mm-hmm. were traumatized by we're having difficult putting language to. Yeah. Um, but when you see it, when you step back and you look at the whole picture. Mm-hmm. But you specifically talk about how the the sexual harassment, which I actually think is because of the array of what you described, gender harassment. Mm-hmm. It's not just sexual because it implies all kinds of denigration of feminine things and feminine mm-hmm. people. Um, talk about the, the work you did in overthrowing that bar on women. So when I was a Marine, and today 7 to 8% of the Marine Corps is female, so it's the branch of service with the fewest number of women, and Mm -hmm. uh, traditionally um, uh, the fewest assignments were open to women because the the vast majority of assignments in in the Marine Corps were combat arms, meaning they were off limits to women by law, by policy. You could not be an infantryman. You could not do artillery or you know, be in a tank, a tank unit, for example. Special operations out of the question. And so I remember when I was, you know, a junior officer and navigating the system and one I, I wanted to be a human intelligence officer. I didn't want to be an infantry officer. 
But human intelligence officers were attached or assigned rather to these combat arms units. Therefore, I couldn't be a human intelligence officer. I thought, this is crazy. Like women can't be spies in the Marines. This is nuts. This is a bad use of personnel, right? right? All of that aside, over time, I saw, I ended up working with the infantry closely for the last two years of my Marine Corps career. Um, and it was incredible because I, I was immersed in infantry culture, which I, I wanted I wanted to be where like the hardest stuff was happening, mm-hmm. the most extreme version of that culture. Met amazing Marines, most of them infantrymen, and we were slowly integrating women into this 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 school. Um, so I had an infantry officer's billet, even though I was not an mm-hmm. infantry officer. Um, and that's where I first saw that men who had been segregated from day one of boot camp, had never worked with a woman before in their lives, had been told by drill instructors and every you know infantry leader they'd ever worked with, women are weak, women are nasty, women are going to bring you down, women don't belong in the Marines, and on and on. And those are like the the, the light, ways the polite comments, yes. right? Um, we're very surprised that women could do the job, women demanded the same uh, standards of their Marines. You know, I was the first female officer most of these guys have ever worked for. Um, and I, and I, I wanted women to work twice as hard and I wasn't, you know, I mean, I, I, there was just one standard for me. There was just one standard. Men didn't expect that from me or other. But they then used it to undermine women as equals in the core, right? So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on in the Marine Corps. I mean, there's, there are double standards, there are double physical standards. There's still segregated basic training, which is ridiculous because the army doesn't do that because the right. army actually integrates basic training and you had a different experience entirely talking to the army i did i mean the army uh, the army has been integrating so we sued we sued yes. the, we sued the pentagon to get rid of this combat exclusion ban that denied women the opportunity to try out for all of these combat assignments infantry special forces etc and three three months later secretary panetta overturned the ban so it was you know, a lawsuit that actually led to change yes. very quickly. And it wasn't it wasn't just the lawsuit. It was the fact, you know, sort of history was already making the case. Hundreds of thousands of women had deployed already to Iraq and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. made many of them in direct combat, direct right. ground combat. And so the policy clearly had to catch up with reality. But what I saw, what I saw in the Marine Corps and what you even see today as recently as, as last year um, is that the highest rates of assault are happening in the Marine Corps. And for me, it's not a surprise. You've got the you've got the institution or the, the branch of service, which is the fiercest, has the fiercest hostility toward women. You know, the sort of hostile work environment is is what you can expect as a woman in the Marines at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then what you see is when harassment and assault happens Oftentimes, cases are swept under the rug. Women are, and you describe one in detail that goes on for a long time. Absolutely. I mean, in my own unit, you know, yes. a, a junior officer was assigned to my unit, and he was a war hero. Uh, literally, it's like straight off the battlefield from Iraq, and had uh, earned a, a bronze star with combat fee, which is a, a very big combat valor award. Um, and unfortunately, and this is not all that common, came back with a lot of arrogance and ego about a lot of things. But he hated women. He just hated women. He didn't He didn't want to work for a woman, and he made it known from day one. And he was protected. He was protected. So when he, when he started harassing all the women in my unit, you know, and undermining my authority, I thought, oh, you know, my senior officer will take care of this, right? He was, he was, this lieutenant was going around saying horrible things about my, my female Marines and, you know. And the students who we were training were eighteen-year-old girls, women, straight out of high school, talking about their body parts, and it was it was sickening stuff. And my battalion commander, when I reported it to him, as I was trained to do, reported up the chain of command. He swept it under the rug. He blamed it. He blamed it on the women uh, who were being harassed, said they were making it up. Right. And I was I was shocked right. because I also was, I still had a lot of idealism in me, and I, I respected this mm-hmm. commander of mine. Um, but but something had already like, worked itself into his his system, and so he stuck up for the lieutenant. The colonel above him stuck up for the lieutenant, and they tried to make it go away. And you eventually sued again to have um, commanders taken out of the chain of decision making in adjudication, right? Right. So well, we didn't sue, sue. but didn't we sue. we sort of came up with the policy uh, reforms that ended up becoming Senator Gillibrand's bill. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, at that time, elected officials, we still had to convince them that this, that sexual assault and harassment were happening in the military. And it wasn't just one or two cases here or there. So this is not a bad apple situation. Right. This was systemic. 
um, and that there was commander bias in the system that was largely responsible for why uh, survivors were not reporting assault uh, up the chain of command. You know, when, when commanders themselves are are literally endowed with uh, legal authority. Like as a, as a junior commander, I was I was also legally um, authorized, authorized to determine the, the outcome of, of cases in my own unit. I, I never went to law school. Why should I be authorized with that right. kind of power, right? Except every every commander is. It's the way the, the military justice system works. And so he said, this is insane. You know, so a commander who's probably male, probably less inclined to believe a woman just because the culture has been this mm-hmm. way for so long. There aren't enough women in the system to change it yet. Um, why should he be, how can we trust him when the two people involved in the case, the alleged perpetrator and the victim are both in his unit, right? Mm-hmm. So nine times out of 10, he's going to side with the alleged perpetrator. Right. Um, so the, what you just described actually also happens in the media where you have newsrooms that are 85, 90% men listening to stories of me too, and have much higher levels of doubt disbelief and hostility to the idea. But in the military, um, sexual assault and trauma, that whole cycle has um, been described as um, the deep betrayal of incest, for example. I mean, you just described basically what forms as a family proxy unit Mm -hmm. where one person is is calling out another person and there is this authority figure. but can you talk about what that deep betrayal represents? Because, in fact, you have um, you say that even when you were faced with these situations, you were still hopeful and be- wanted to believe that the right thing would be done. And you describe, you said, I, I even maintain, I even continue to have a dizzying sense of what felt like loyalty, mm-hmm. which is hard. Um, and, and I actually think many people feel that in the institutions that they're part of, whether mm-hmm. it's a religious institution or, or an educational institution. And then you say, had I become a misogynist? Mm. Which, which I mean, all of us have misogyny yeah. in our cultural makeup, yeah. you know. But you really said, oh, has that happened to me? Yeah, and I think... After many years of reflection, um, I mean, some of that is about Mm self-hatred. And so all of this segregation that was happening around me and to me Mm -hmm. and the other women I was with, the very few women I was with in the Marines, I started believing some of the hype. Um, and I don't think I was even conscious of it. Certainly, I was sti- I was sticking up for the women in my units right. more than was anyone else was. And certainly, it was against myself my, my self interest. Um, but um, you know, there's this 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 phrase weakness by association. We just avoided what well, women avoided one another like the plague because you were you were seen as sort of like collectively weak, and so you. There were of you. The more there were yeah. of us, absolutely. Um, but the betrayal, the, um, the, the trauma that you described, the trauma that people are experiencing, and it's men and women, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, women disproportionately, but tens of thousands of men yeah. um, who experience this deep betrayal of the institution. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very unique institution. It is, there's a lot of ceremony customs and courtesies and those drill instructors they they work a number on you i mean if they are i will like when i'm on my deathbed whenever that is i will probably run my drill instructor will be running through my mind yelling at me like it is it is uh it is such a fierce indoctrination but it's it's not it's not all anger and fury it's also there's there's love in there somewhere now is it actually love i don't know but it is you know, this idea of belonging, like really belonging to this larger than life institution and you would die for it. And like, we don't know what the heck we're talking about. You know, we're like straight mm-hmm. out of high school or college. And that means nothing to us. Most of us, right. Unless we've had a, a parent or a sibling or something mm-hmm. that's actually experienced that. But, um, just the idea of it, you know, uh, it, it runs so deep. I still, I hear the Marines hymn. This is like 15 years later, I live in, in New York City in Manhattan right now. There's a bagpiper who plays on the street. And of course, a Marine's name is part of his it. repertoire. Right. I just I just can't stand it because I I my my heels lock together still. Yeah. So I have to fight it. I have to fight coming to the position of attention. You know, I mean, it's in there. It's, it's you know, Semper Fi, all of that. It's in there. So betrayal, 
Is it, I still wanted to go back in, even though I was so hurt. Like a year later, I was I was visiting recruiters again. I was going to go back and deploy overseas. I mean, there's just this. It's in the blood. It's probably in the DNA at this point. So um, I told you I was going to ask you about this because obviously I wrote a book about anger. Um, and we were talking earlier and... You use the word rage a lot. At one point, you describe yourself as a one-woman rage mobile. And um, what did you do with all of that? Because you were in an environment where clearly expressing your rage um, was not an option. Not Not in the ways that you might otherwise. Right, right. Yeah, well, rage was useless without power. Yes, that's and right. Then, and yeah. women find anger powerless often, whereas men find it powerful mm-hmm. because it's constructed that way. Right. Yeah, I mean, I got out of the Marines, and I I didn't know why I was angry. This is the thing that yeah. boggles my mind. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not clueless. I think yeah. of myself as fairly self-aware. I didn't know why I was angry. Well, of course you're angry. You know, look, look at what you just just experienced, right? right? But it had never been validated as discrimination or harassment or assault. So why would I, why would I know? (laughs) Right. I'm just, and of course, you know, the invalidation of anger just generally, right. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be angry. Right. Or or your anger really, um, it has no social value. Yeah. Yeah. When clearly your anger had social value. Well, the other thing is, you know, I got out and I, I, I had not been to Iraq or Afghanistan. And so when I, the, the common connecting conversation with sort of human beings I would meet is, oh, did you go overseas? And I was like, well, yes, but I wasn't in combat. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so then the conversation ended there and they didn't realize that I might have experienced something arguably, and many people have argued this to me as bad or worse. That's right. uh, Because it's it's in my system and it's the same symptoms and it's the same diagnoses. So... So what is that about? But the invalidation, right? Like not, you know, to be one of very few women or any marginalized group in a system that constantly reminds you of how small you are and how little you belong, that is that is a surefire way of traumatizing somebody. So in the general population, doctors have struggled for a long time to understand why women have higher rates of PTSD mm-hmm. because they associate it with war and it turns out that they have higher rates of PTSD because of sexual threat and violence and hypervigilance. And um, it just seemed, again, reading this, that it was just so concentrated in this environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you basically, at one point, essentially describe it as the cost of being a woman, both in just daily life, but yeah. particularly in the military. Yeah, you know, one of the things I'm realizing, uh, so as I, I spent the last 10 years and 10 years plus uh, organizing women veterans, meeting women veterans around the nation, and realizing, you know, there are many of us, many of us felt the same way in terms of our anger. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were also just as many women who refused to to call themselves victims or acknowledge that they had been victimized in any right. way. And this really struck me. Um, you know, why, why was that so important to say? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I very much identified with this idea of, you know, someone who wants to join the military does not want to be seen as a victim, certainly does not want to be victimized, but this idea of like the invincible warrior, right? Mm-hmm. We can conquer anything. Um, and of course, rape, assault, harassment are used to dehumanize, uh, human beings right and so when that ha- i mean it's a, it's a very uh deliberate tool right and so but but there's something very it's there's something kind of particular about the way women veterans oftentimes defend um their their warrior status as if like you know you cannot do that to me right and and many of these women i'm sort of referring to have been harassed have and and by default have been discriminated against but i think that's generally true i mean there are many women who refuse to understand that fighting against discrimination um is is not saying you are a victim you know, if you're describing this situation, if you're trying to fight this situation, what I think is interesting very often is when people say, I'm not a victim, stop making all women victims, etc. They usually have a just, a just world framework. And the fact is that 
if you are a victim in that framework, it actually means it's your fault mm. because you must have done something to deserve it. So the victim tag to me has always been a defense against being blamed for doing something. Mm. You know, if you're poor, it's because you're lazy. If you're raped, it's because you're a woman, you were in the wrong place, right. you know. Um, but you really do write about women who are actually operating in a patriarchal culture and are part of the problem and men who are part of the solution. You, I think, at least from my perspective, go out of your way to describe the men who got it, who seemed to understand what was happening and actually to their own detriment sometimes would do the right thing and um, back you up. Yeah, this was the thing that was, you know, such a pleasant surprise in a world where, it was, you know, I didn't have a lot of friends mm -hmm. during these moments, but in that all or virtually all male infantry environment where women were being integrated, when my female sergeants were being harassed by this very toxic lieutenant, it was the male infantrymen who came to their defense and we all had their backs. Like we, we were just a, we were a solid unit, one, you know, one front, um, and when the battalion commander, the, my senior officer, came down and, and swept it under the rug and said, you know, captain to me, you know, mm -hmm. take care of it. It's basically make it go right. away. Um, it was my male infantrymen who were who were the most pissed. Right. Off the most disappointed. The most disappointed. And to this day, this is now 15 years later, I'm still getting the emails and yeah. the Facebook messages from these men who learned so much from that moment. First of all, it's the sort of like they they loved working with those women. They had so much respect for them. Um, and they recognized harassment for what it was. And, and again, these, these men had never worked with women before, right? But they understood basic values, mm -hmm. um, more, more so than the Marine Corps as a whole. So um, when you and I first met, I'm going to ask you to tell this story because I was just amazed that this was still where you were. But tell the Hooters story. <laughs> because actually that's, that's something that happens all the time to women who are working in very concentrated male domination, dominated spaces. Sure. So the, you know, the veterans organizing space, not surprisingly, is very male. It's very white. It's very straight. It's all, it's all the things, right? So, uh, uh, the former head of a very large post nine 11 organization, um, it's pretty really my age, my peer, mm -hmm. you know, former Lieutenant, uh, and very, very charismatic, savvy guy. Uh, he wanted to host a, an outreach event at Hooters in New York an, an City. An outreach to veterans. To veterans, a veterans outreach event. And and he was somebody who, you know, when we were really, really hitting the halls of Congress, um, demanding that elected officials pay attention to sexual assault and harassment in the military, and, and they weren't, uh, until it mattered, until they could get right. voted out of office if they ignored it anymore. Um, he was one of the few people who was speaking out against assault and harassment in the military. So he, he was, on paper at least, an ally. Guy. He was a good guy. But Hooters, right? And so... He picked it as the place to have the veterans meeting. Yeah, and I... So I... I I'm still... I'm still, some, I'm still surprised. So I had to explain him why this was wrong. And he had to explain to me, because yeah. that's what many men do. He had to explain to me why I was wrong. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and and so, he, he actually argued that it would not only bring men together, but women together, and men and women together. Yes, absolutely. Yes. It's just a social event. It's just a social event. Right. That's right. Bring veterans together. Just didn't understand. And didn't understand. The thing that he didn't understand was how this Hooters establishment could possibly be connected in any way to sexual to trauma your, in right. the military for which he was supposed to be as outspoken advocate or against mm -hmm. which. Right. So it, it's anyway, we, we, <laughs> we rallied the, you know, feminist organizing sphere and we were, we were going to make it public until he backed off at the nth hour. That's, that's a good thing. And it was a good thing for him. Yeah. Um, so I really want us to have time to take questions, but not before we uh, talk about um, yoga. Okay. We got to talk about yoga because actually there's such a transition in your book when you're going through the incredibly raw and honest process of describing the trauma that you experience and what it meant to you to be able to have a practice, to teach others, and, and actually to physically be in a space where there were men 
Um, I'm not a yoga person. I've tried, I've failed. Um, but I hadn't ever thought of it in the way you described it. Can you talk about that? Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, and I have, I've had one of these relationships with yoga where it has, it, I don't even know if I'm a yoga person right now. Um, I but started, you did dedicate I a did significant de- I've, amount of time. I've gone deep. Yeah, yeah. so I, I, when things were really bad in the Marines, I, I found yoga off the highway yeah. in Wilmington, North Carolina. And all I remember from that experience, I can tell you a thing about, you know, poses or breathing or this or that, or that is that I met these warm, compassionate people who had welcomed me into their space and I felt safe. Mm-hmm. That's all I remember, right? And that was right. that was enough. Um, I hadn't been smiled at, or it wasn't, well, I had been smiled at, but not in the right ways, right? Yes. I, I had not experienced that kind of warmth in years. And so that was my first kind of deep dive after a while into yoga. So I, I wanted to I wanted to experience that again. And the, like that sense of peace, fullness. <laughs> and, and, and do you feel, because a lot of the conversation with yourself yeah. and with the reader has to do with just this basic idea that you can feel safe somewhere. And a lot, a lot of us are Mm hypervigilant without even realizing Mm -hmm. it. A lot of us disassociate without even knowing what that word means. You know, I was probably 48 before I put those two things together for, for my Mm -hmm. own purposes, Mm -hmm. but something about that space did that for you immediately. Absolutely. And I, and I was hypervigilant. In fact, the first time I actually took the class in that warm, loving studio, I had a panic attack and I had to run out in that, you know, that beautiful end end of yoga pose, Mm -hmm. you know, Shavasana, corpse pose, whatever you want to call it. But I had a panic attack. I freaked out and ran out of the room. And that's happened to many of my students. Anyway, so, you know, fast forward a little bit. I took a yoga teacher training. I became a teacher, but I, I didn't want to teach sort of Typical New Yorkers. I know there's no such thing as a typical New Yorker. I wanted I wanted to teach people I thought were were hurting in some mm-hmm. specific way, and I ended up I started out with with men who uh, were living with HIV/AIDS, and then transitioned to veterans. Um, and at Integral Yoga Institute, uh, they gave us a free space to practice once or twice a week, and I you know did it for the next ten years after that. But most of my students are male, um, and so for me it was. You know, I was, I was very, I was terrified at first because, you know, to be again in this position of relative authority as a teacher in a room. And most of my students now were men again, just like, just like they were in the Marines, um, but very different dynamic because, you know, yoga, it encourages and possibly demands vulnerability. And so what is that like then for men to be vulnerable when they're certainly not encouraged to be in the military, what would it be like for me to be vulnerable when I couldn't, it when it was not safe to be vulnerable as a woman officer in charge of men, right. I could not show any softness. And all of a sudden we're doing that in this, in this space where we're breathing deeply and stretching and lying on our backs. And yeah, I mean, it's very, it's trans- you're in a vulnerable position. Absolutely. And so, you know, and so when women did come in and, and, and men would also experience this thing that I experienced, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the panic arising when for, you might possibly have taken the first deep breath in a decade. Right. right. When you finally allow some of those layers to come off. Hardest thing in the world, I think. You we haven't really talked about this, but um, you were in the military um, and don't ask, don't tell. Um was influential in your experience. Mm-hmm. And you, you write about um, being bisexual, being queer, and and having that held over you in an environment where there was rampant sexual promiscuity yeah. that broke the rules. Yeah. I mean, I write about an incident when my unit, my battalion, I was based in Okinawa, and we deployed to Thailand for an annual exercise, three, three months, and lived in Thailand for three months. But, you know, the formative experience I had was sort of experiencing or witnessing my male peers engage full-on in, in commercial sexual exploitation um, of women and, and girls in Thailand. Right. Um, definitely many girls. And, and, you know, we're talking about now, I mean, my battalion was maybe 800 people, but that was, you know, one unit of dozens, right? So there are thousands of American service members just sort mm-hmm. of flooding into these towns every day. And and that that in, in many ways was was 
uh, I mean, it stays with me. Like I, I still have you shame. Can't unsee the, things. I can't unsee things. Right. And also, right. I, there is no, I did not feel like a Marine during that moment. Right. right. During that deployment, I was very much a woman, uh, of color with parents from India with, cousins and aunts and uncles from India, right? Like, well, I cannot see can, Thai women right. and girls as anything other than, like, my right. my people, right? And you talk about what it's like to serve in a military that is still steeped in imperialism, colonialism, or white supremacy. I mean, all of those things came together in Thailand. Absolutely. I mean, it was... Uh, it, it, it's just shocking. I, I and, and the thing is, American service members, I mean, we have bases all over the globe, and so... You know, I saw the East Asian version of it. I saw Japan. I saw Thailand. Um, you can't unsee it. It also, it changes. I, I, you know, even though I lock my heels together when the Marines hymn is playing, and yes, I will stand and, you know, salute the flag when the national anthem plays, even though I support people's right to take a knee, like enthusiastically encourage them to. I, it's just in my system, but I still have to speak out against what American service members are doing, either to women and girls around the world or to one another. It's well, and we're grateful. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's hard what you've been doing. Um, I'm I'm going to open it up to questions. Um, thank you so much. I'm a little bit. Uh unsure of what I want to say, except just to thank you for your courage and your advocacy in writing this book. Um, people who go first in er any area of life pay a high price. And, and you took that risk and made that happen. So I guess my question is on how to make things better. I mean, I have so many questions for you, but I really would like to know, and I should know this, but what is the status of the bill that allows these actions to be reviewed? It seems like more and more people are coming out. Uh, Senator McSally very recently told her very personal story of being sexually assaulted, I think, by her officer. Uh, it, so it seems like this is very new and maybe doesn't have a solution in place. I hope there is one, but what's the status of that now? So it hasn't moved forward is the status of it. Um, I mean, I'm very curious to see what Senator Gillibrand says about it as she goes forward with her presidential campaign. I, I find the Martha McSally story really fascinating um, for a number of reasons. Uh, She's not the only member of Congress, Senate House, who's been assaulted in the military or who's spoken about it. Uh, Senator Ernst has as well. Um, but as I've been telling people, Martha McSally's on the wrong side of the policy debate. So there's there's a few things we could say about it. So in other words, she doesn't support Senator Gillibrand's reforms. And many people, as you point out, have been silent around these reforms. Absolutely. I mean, there's... It's... Vanya, can I put you on the spot for a second? How many senators support Senator Gillibrand's bill today? Do you know? Mm -hmm. Approximately. Right. Right. And we had about 55 back in the day, yeah. So it, it's we, we just don't have enough votes in the Senate. Um, Martha McSally, I mean, she's a fascinating figure. She has done so much for women in the military, not just in terms of her role as a pilot. But I, uh, so she's an icon, right? So every time a survivor speaks out, yes, it's impactful. Yes, it encourages other survivors to come out. She was a colonel, right? For a colonel to speak out, that's amazing. And yet the thing that made the hugest impression on me is if it's, that, if it's that hard for a colonel to speak out, a retired colonel, right? After that, now we know about it. She's, she's now a senator with her power, privilege, rank, right? Mm. Imagine how hard it is for a lance corporal or a private in the mm -hmm. Marine Corps or the Army. Right? And, and those are the troops. They, they make the vast majority, not just of the military, but of victims of sexual harassment and assault. Mm. So that I think that's the takeaway from Martha McSally speaking about her assault is if it's that hard for her imagine how hard it is for the kids right, right. for the young people 
And those are the folks who have the least power. We have to protect them. So somebody once said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So when you have a closed system in any institution like the church, like the military, it seems like a no-brainer that you, you can't have the fox guarding the chicken coop, if that's inappropriate. So why don't people get that? <laughs> I don't understand. Well, so, yeah. you know, it's interesting that you talked about a closed system because I, I actually think that it's the overlap between multiple closed systems that make this such an intractable problem because that entire system is replicated at different scale in, for example, the Catholic hierarchy in our media institutions, in Silicon Valley, in technology, on Wall Street. And so none of those institutions has been transformed to the point where they can stand alone and call out any of the others. And in fact, they gain power in the overlap when there's silence. They gain power in the silence between them. So it's not just what's happening within a sector, but what's happening when they overlap. And they can actually leverage those sex-segregated fraternal bonds to enforce silence and to punish people who come forward. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I would say about that is, you know, Americans are in love with the military, which which can be a wonderful thing, right? But but the people we've elected to office are in love, are in love with military leadership. That's how I see things, mm-hmm. right? So, like, the military is made up of a whole lot of enlisted not, service members. Right? Maybe like, they're not in love with the military. Maybe they're in love with the authoritarian aspects of the institution and the order that the institution represents. I think there's some of that, and yet going around the country, travel to any airport, you know, south of the Northeast or west of the Northeast, really. I mean, they're just great people wanting to support young folks who are volunteering to do something courageous or dangerous Mm -hmm. so that the vast majority of Americans don't. There's a real goodness to the narrative that, you know, that has helped us actually do the reform on sexual assault and harassment because because when you talk to everyday americans they're like oh no like That's my not, right. niece my nephew is serving i don't want them to be harassed i don't want them to be raped right but you, you talk to elected officials the stakes are different you know they are in awe of these generals they rarely speak out unless they're running for higher office mm-hmm. and then they have a point to make you know so it's it's a little tricky yeah it's hard. Um, are there other questions? Or yes. yes, thank you. Um, first, I want to echo my appreciation for all of the, excuse me, work that you've done and the book itself. It's such a gift um, to. Well, I feel like it's a gift to me personally, but I think it's probably a gift to so many others, and it's a gift to the military, whether they recognize it that way or not. Um, you led at the beginning, um, just you know, referencing the fact that the Me Too movement has happened, and I was just curious kind of what has the what has the impact of that movement been on you personally and on your advocacy around this bill this piece of legislation this piece of policy that probably didn't need a whole other set of layers to have to work through is my guess (laughs) so i write about thank you for your question i write about how me too bypassed the military Mm -hmm. uh, in large part Mm -hmm. because of again Mm -hmm. you know elected officials still bow down to military leadership uh, for all the wrong reasons. And and so until that changes, um, you know, all the survivors in the world can come forward. I sometimes, you know, I, I will take a step back and think about how many sexual assault scandals have happened over time, like even when I was a child and before I was born, right? And Tailhook was probably the biggest one I was aware of, mm-hmm. conscious of. But, you know, every five years, there's something, right? In one of the branches of service, let, you know, we'll talk years about ago, the Marines Facebook United. page, right? So, Marines United is the you know the latest, uh, and probably not the latest, but right. the latest huge one in my consciousness, where over thirty thousand, mostly Marines, but all all male veterans, service members, uh, started a page uh, on Facebook called Marines United. Sounds sort of innocuous and patriotic, right? But it was a page filled with. Uh, nude photos as as the media calls it nude photos of of women many of them non-consensual civilians non-consensual Soraya by the way is an expert on (laughs) the ways in which Facebook and Twitter um are exploiting women and I will let her talk about that more but um the men who formed Marines United are far more savvy than Marine Corps leadership who is not aware of how the internet is used to uh, denigrate 
and exploit women. Um, and so that page, it just like whack-a-mole, you know, they tried to shut it down and it popped up in a different form. They tried to shut it down. They popped it. it, it it's amazing. Marine Corps had no idea what to do. Acted like it was a total surprise. There's nothing surprising about this. And, you know, I actually, I, I sort of lay out the, I connect the dots. I was like, why did Marines United happen? Mm -hmm. One of the reasons was, the, in my opinion, the election of Donald Trump and all of his language about grabbing places. freedom to do it. The other was the combat exclusion ban was lifted and all of a sudden women were being integrated into, into infantry units in the Marine Corps. That made some men nuts. And you can literally track like the months in which those things, those two things were happening between the presidential election to the integration of Marines and infantry units in the Marine Corps to Marines uniting spring up. So, you know, language matters, leadership matters. Um, and I, I think yeah. that page and its community is really just a symptom of a much bigger backlash against women's equality in general. And we see its efflorescence online every day, and we see it in some of the most vicious ways possible. And so even five years before, I was in touch with um, actually Representative Spears' office because no, they couldn't reach anybody at Facebook to have certain pages taken down. And these pages were targeting women service members with explicit non-consensual pornification, and they were flourishing. And it didn't violate Facebook's rules to do that. And um, this has not really stopped. I mean, even today I had a conversation about why sexual dehumanization is not considered dehumanization. Why is there a qualifier if the objectification that happens is sexual? Because that just grossly disproportionately negatively affects all women. Um, and there's really no resolution to this. Um, at the time that that happened, um, what's called revenge porn, which is a piss poor name for non-consensual sexual imagery, um, was legal in most states. Now a consortium of activists and legal scholars has fought state after state after state so that it's now illegal in about 50% of states. But that leaves the others in which it's still just fine to do. And I think that that example from the military, again, is just this intense, concentrated representation of norms in the larger culture. And I want to say thank you to everyone for coming out tonight. And thank you for your work and for writing this book. Thanks. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.